Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails, Remastered. This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the Great Northern War, which originally aired as one episode on the 4th of July, 2012. You're very welcome back to When Diplomacy Fails. My name is Zach. This war follows on nicely from the last one in that it raged parallel to the War of the Spanish Succession and tied up pretty much all of Scandinavia in the process. Remember Charles XII of Sweden's cameo midway through the war? When he up and marched into Saxony in a bid to knock Poland out of the war? Well, that act was an example of what the King of Sweden was capable of and the odds he faced. Not only is the war relevant to us for that reason, but it hides a fascinating story. For decades before 1700, Sweden was the imperial powerhouse at the north of Europe. Inheriting the legacy from Gustavus Adolphus, Sweden essentially reigned supreme for a period of just under 100 years, and it is in this war that this reign comes to an end. The Swedish imperial experiment has been one of our many stars in the continuing narrative of when diplomacy fails since our regular programming began. When I was first introduced to this era five years ago, I had little idea of what intrigues the Swedish Empire held, or of its more famous exploits. Incredible as it may sound, I didn't know anything about Gustavus Adolphus, infamous deluges or Swedish military might, 
But the Great Northern War lit a fire under me that compelled me to discover more about Scandinavian history, a fire which has arguably never stopped burning. It's only right that we did a good job on this war then, that spark of a war which led to all others. Okay, so the Great Northern War. Let's get right into it. I will now take you to the year 1700. I have conquered an empire, but I have not been able to conquer myself. Peter the Great It is hard to imagine these days, but Sweden in 1700 had a vast Scandinavian empire which then extended to parts of northern Europe, including the Baltic states like Latvia and Estonia, and stretched further north to also encompass Finland. How did Sweden get so powerful? It's kind of a long story, so sit tight. The story of Sweden's curious relationship with empire has as much to do with the weakness of its neighbours as it does with the emergence, within a generation, of a kind of military culture at the top of Sweden's monarchy. This military presence and the preeminence of Sweden at the top of the military food chain was thanks to its experiences first as a kind of vassal of Denmark before breaking away from the Kalmar Union in the early 1500s, to its battles with its neighbours in between the 1600s and 1620s. However, no one factor was more important in shaping Sweden into the military powerhouse it became than the accession of Gustavus Adolphus to the throne of Sweden in 1611. Gustavus fought running battles with his neighbours in Russia, Denmark and Poland, but he would go one better than all his predecessors in the soon-to-erupt conflict known as the Thirty Years' War. Sweden was, just like practically everyone else in Europe, involved in the Thirty Years' War, which raged from 1618 to 48, as we of course all know. Intervening in the early 1630s against the Habsburgs, Gustavus Adolphus' stunning victory at Breitenfeld in summer 1631 shattered Habsburg invincibility and heralded a new age of Swedish militarism. The victory confirmed what Sweden's immediate neighbours already understood – that Gustavus possessed a keen military mind and was eager to fight for Sweden on the world stage. In the aftermath of the Thirty Years' War, while Sweden inherited a large empire, it was mostly floating on the success of Swedish arms and boasted of little else that could hold it together. The need to defend Swedish prestige and make use of its arms against its enemies led many a Swedish king to feel forced into making war against his neighbours. The most notable of these instances was the Little Northern War, or Swedish deluges as we've come to view them, which occurred from 1655 to 60 and dragged in Russia, Denmark, Norway, Brandenburg, Prussia, the Habsburgs, and even the Dutch and English on occasion. The war was in many ways a precursor for this episode's war, the Great Northern War, 40 years later. In those 40 years between the two wars, so 1660 to 1700, Sweden was watched with a mixture of jealousy and fear by its European neighbours. Sweden made use of its effective organisation and administration, both of which were far ahead of most other European powers at the time. Sweden's armies also possessed a more professional and structured form of military drill than most of its neighbours, which gave it the edge on the battlefield. Years of financial instability and dependence upon its allies, such as France, meant that in the past, Swedish officials often pledged Swedish support for wars that Sweden couldn't actually afford. With a population of barely one million by the 1650s, 
If Sweden wished to maintain its legendary reputation for arms and military feats, it would need foreign subsidies to maintain its empire and pay its troops. For decades, this formula for Swedish success had been risky, but everything had held together nonetheless. By the 1690s, though, it was clear that everything was changing. The subsidies were beginning to dry up, as Sweden came to realise it could no longer rely on Louis XIV's France for aid. What was more, with its neighbours always on the lookout for signs of weakness, such weakness appeared to have arrived when it was learned in 1697 that Sweden was to be ruled by a teenager, Charles XII. This placed Sweden, at least in the minds of its neighbours, in a vulnerable position. Over the decades, and this will be all familiar to us guys since we've, of course, listened to the previous episodes, Sweden had rich experience fighting its neighbours for a variety of reasons, either due to the nature of coalitions or for the strategic advantage. A bitter history with Denmark in particular meant that the Danes would always burn for revenge, no matter the odds against them, and will waste no opportunity in bringing a league to bear against the Swedes. Russia, on the other hand, was forever looking to regain the ports into the Baltic, which they had lost a century earlier, to Sweden's great benefit. Sweden's relationship with Poland was one of those that only came around once in an era. Far from Russia or the Danes, which historians normally seek to focus attention on when examining the wars of the Swedes, Poland must hold a critical position in Swedish history. It seems incredible considering the vast distances between the two states, but the history of both powers was shaped both by religion and family. As the 1500s came to a close, Sweden remained in a union with Poland-Lithuania until the uncle of the ruling king, who was based in Poland, threw off the Catholic-Polish yoke of his nephew and rallied his countrymen, who were mostly Protestants, behind him. Despite numerous invasions to put his uncle down, the usurped Polish king never managed to reclaim his inheritance from the Swedish upstart, whose son, Gustavus Adolphus, inherited the Swedish-Polish rivalry and all that that entailed. Gustavus thus understood the venom which lay behind the rivalry of the Swedish Vasa House with the Polish Vasa House, and as the Swedes became intermingled with Protestant European concerns and distinguished themselves that way, the Polish Vasas married into Habsburgs and other German families so that both lines, though similar in name and technically cousins for a time, couldn't have been more different in reality. The Swedish deluges were the Swedish answer to years of Polish insults and intransigence, though even at that stage Russia did loom larger in the Swedish sense than Poland did. The unwillingness of the Polish king at the time of the deluges to relinquish his claims on the Swedish throne, claims which, don't forget, dated back to over 50 years to when the Swedish uncle deposed his nephew, as we saw, forced the hand of the Swedish king in that case because he couldn't very well fight alongside a power that refused to recognise him as the king of his country. So even though Poland was the weaker, problem-plagued power in the 1650s, Sweden elected to invade rather than let Russia take all the spoils by itself. When Poland collapsed and its major cities fell one after the other to the Swedes in less than a year, and when the very union of Poland and Lithuania was apparently dissolved soon after, it seemed as though a watershed moment had been reached in the Swedish-Polish relationship. 
Never again would the Poles threaten Sweden as they had, only alongside a coalition of other powers and by teaming up with the equally bitter Danes, who had been usurped from their position atop the Scandinavian food chain by those Swedes, could Poland hope to gain a measure of revenge. It was highly likely too that the continually expanding Russia would also join this coalition, especially with the new king of Sweden at such a young age and apparently vulnerable to attack. Russia was, to its great fortune, at this time under its greatest ruler to that point, Peter the Great. Peter's goals were to change Russia into a European power and he knew that to do this, Russia needed to expand into the Baltic. Peter was determined to change the status quo. His country had enormous underdeveloped natural resources and it boasted hegemony over a vast number of peoples and land. But none of this mattered to Peter so long as the Swedes were hogging the spotlight. Peter was not alone in seeing the need to knock Sweden off its position of North European dominance, as his ancient enemy Poland proved when it contacted him looking for an alliance to take down Sweden in 1696. Poland-Lithuania, as we've seen, had a fascinating history of dynastic rivalry with its Swedish neighbour. Yet, what you may not know is just how important a state Poland was to the history of Europe and just how significant a role the Poles played in that history. The Polish political system was characterised by strict and constant restrictions on the ruling king put in place by the legislature, which was controlled by the nobility. Its system of government had a great influence on later concepts, such as constitutional monarchy, federation and even democracy. It contained numerous religious minorities, but possessed a high level of religious tolerance. It was, for a long time, one of the largest and most populous states in Europe, peaking at 11 million subjects in the early 1600s. It was in many ways an uneven union, though, created in the Union of Lublin in July 1569 by the two states of Poland and Lithuania, after years of previous close cooperation between the two. Both states were formally equal, sharing the same parliament and rights, but as Poland was the larger, it did by default have the monopoly over many institutions. The idea of two states uniting like Poland-Lithuania did was an ancient, old idea, and the idea of Poland itself dates back centuries. It was because Poland-Lithuania constantly modernised that it was always a relevant, prosperous state, far more so, by the way, than Russia at that time, to its very far east. Despite its losses to Sweden then in years gone by, Poland was far too important and present in European affairs to be sufficiently reduced. Poland also boasted the first ever written constitution in Europe, and the second ever in the world, behind Uncle Sam, of course. On a side note, its official motto was, If God is with us, then who is against us? a phrase which adopts a life of its own in the 20th century. Poland's monarch by 1700 was also the elector of Saxony, Augustus the Strong. On a side note though, Augustus the Strong was not strong, and his name is actually a mistranslation of his German name, which actually meant Augustus the Potent, potent because he fathered so many illegitimate children. Augustus himself knew that he was not in a strong position to defend his home country and Poland-Lithuania alone against a Sweden which had fought Poland so many times before. His claim on the Polish throne wasn't particularly strong either, and he managed to be elected as Poland's king only after converting to Catholicism, 
an act which is thoroughly Protestant subjects in Saxony, viewed as a calculated move aimed only at acquiring greater power for himself, and they were probably right. It was condescendingly referred to as his Polish adventure back in Saxony, but this didn't put Augustus off. He relished the chance to expand his family's interests and reach, as many other German rulers at that time were doing, and he spent vast sums of money bribing Polish officials to consider his candidacy for the throne. This successful, he turned to Poland's ancient enemy, Russia, in an attempt to begin the reign with a bang. Augustus knew that Peter had plans for Russia which involved the Baltic states. Augustus also knew that he would have no better chance to attack Sweden than now, when Sweden's new monarch was merely 15 and inexperienced in world affairs. Augustus brought with him not only the resources of Poland and Lithuania, but also Saxony, and seeing this, Peter could see no better ally than his former enemy. And so they signed the Treaty of Preobrazenskoy, which I'm only saying once, in November 1699, formally confirming the verbal agreement that the two rulers had made three years before, and adding Russia to the worst-kept secret in Eastern Europe, the Anti-Swedish League. The final member of the League was a state with more than just a score to settle with Sweden, the other union of the League, Denmark-Norway. Both Denmark and Norway had parts of their own territory peeled off by Sweden over the past centuries and both wanted a measure of revenge. They saw, as did the other members of the League, their greatest opportunity present itself when the teenage king Charles XII descended to the throne. Charles's father, grandfather and great-grandfather's brother had been rulers of Sweden with an iron hand. His great-grandfather's brother had been Gustavus Adolphus, the king of Sweden, who had done so much to advance his state's position at the expense of his neighbours. The descendant of such strong and influential men would surely spell disaster for Sweden's neighbours, unless that leader could be culled while he was still a boy. But this boy was made of the same stuff as his forefathers, and as we shall soon see, was more than capable of giving his enemies a run for their money. Charles XII inherited his father's throne in 1697 and began to implement a series of reforms. These reforms centred on acquiring more power for the monarchy by taking lands back from the nobility in a process called reduction. This process was often unpopular among the Swedish nobility, understandably, but the threat that they posed was negated by Charles's insistence on maintaining a professional army at all times, a process called allotment. This enabled Charles to move with confidence, as he knew that his army did not have to be mobilised and raised from scratch, as many other countries had to do. It also enabled him to mount successful shock attacks early in the war. But the presence of a standing army in Sweden was neither a new idea, nor was it cheap, though Charles sought to perfect the model by saving costs wherever possible, deferring to his more experienced advisers, many of whom had advised his father, and also planning for the war to come. History told Charles that all Swedish kings became involved in wars at some point. To Charles, it seemed like only a matter of time before he involved himself in some wars. At the he- Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market head of his armies, as his ancestors had done. To give you a bit of background on Charles XII himself, the man refrained from all kinds of luxury and alcohol, and usage of the French language. He preferred the life of an ordinary soldier on horseback, not that of contemporary royal courts. He determinedly pursued his goal of dethroning his adversaries, whom he considered unworthy of their thrones due to their broken promises, thereby refusing to take several chances to make peace. This policy of Charles's would come back to haunt him later on, as he would turn down numerous chances to end the war on favourable terms, based on the fact that his enemies' monarchs were still in place. Such stubbornness came more from his own sense of what the monarchy should be and how divine right ought to be implemented, rather than any ideas of right or wrong where ruling one's people was concerned. Though he prepared for war, Charles did want peace for Sweden, and certainly he probably would have preferred peace, since under peace he would be better equipped to implement his desired reforms. Once again, though, Charles would have known from history that in the case of Swedish kings, war normally came at the expense of this reform. Charles had increased the size of his army from 65 to 77,000 men once he ascended to the throne, which was an enormous army for an agricultural state like Sweden. He also increased the size of the navy to rival Denmark's. These responses to the international situation of the late 1690s were hardly surprising considering the schemes of his enemies and the anti-Swedish league which seemed to be on the horizon. Charles knew that the Poles and Danes were the most immediate threat to Sweden, but It was Russia which kept him awake at night. Since its creation, Russia had been viewed as the state with the untapped potential, with all the tools, but without somebody who knew how to use them. Charles would have gathered from his agents and other information that Tsar Peter was different. He could be this somebody that Russia so desperately needed. He knew that Peter had been modernising, consolidating and expanding on what Russia had, meaning that fighting Russia now would be quite unlike fighting Russia before. And Charles was right. Peter was transforming Russia, as Europe knew it. In many ways, Peter was a standout choice for the job of Tsar. Well, for one, he stood 6 foot 8 inches tall, which is tall even now, so he must have seemed like a giant back then. Such a stature gave Peter a certain air of power and strength when negotiating for and representing Russia, but Peter's apparent power was deceptive. While he certainly made an impression upon his adversaries, if one looked closer they could see that Peter lacked the strength and bulk normally associated with such a height. Additionally, it is now suspected that Peter suffered from a sort of epilepsy which made his face twitch on occasion, startling those he came into contact with. Filippo Baltari, a young Italian visitor to Peter's court, wrote, Tsar Peter was tall and thin rather than stout. His hair was thick, short, and dark brown. He had large eyes, black with long lashes, a well-shaped mouth, but the lower lip was slightly disfigured. For his great height, his feet seemed very narrow. His head was sometimes tugged to the right by convulsions. 
Peter is responsible for another few changes in Russian policy too. In his efforts to make Russia appear like a more civilized country, he had his servants, soldiers and statesmen all shave their beards. He even passed this on to the Russian clergy, who were horrified, believing that to shave one's beard was to go against the will of God. Eventually, though, most would obey, and while they probably felt colder, they certainly looked more respectable. With their beards, well, quite literally out of the way, Peter then switched Russian policy to focus on the construction of a navy, an idea which must have seemed alien to the land-based Russian Tsardom. But Peter endured the protest to his rule, putting down many quite ruthlessly, and even torturing to death one of his few surviving sons, Alexei, on suspicion that he may try to overthrow his daddy. Maybe Alexei just wanted to keep his beard. Considering the apparent build towards war in Scandinavia, it may surprise you to learn that in 1697, Peter the Beardless grew determined to strike not at Sweden, but at the Ottoman Empire. He viewed its territory, much of which overlapped or bordered his, as necessary for Russian expansion. However, Peter knew Russia could not face the Ottoman Turks alone, so he tried to gain allies in Europe to fight with, or even for, him. At this point, the Turks had been fighting against the Western Allies since the 1680s, with the last siege of Vienna in 1683 amongst the most famous sites of that campaign. Since then, the Allies had pushed the Ottomans gradually back, but if Russia was to commit itself to the battle... Peter wanted to be sure of some benefits to his empire, perhaps in the form of some healthy subsidies. The Grand Embassy, as it became known, was the result of this desire for better terms, as Peter tried to find a way to make Europe pay for Russian expansion into the Ottoman Empire. It deserves mention here because Peter the Great actually travelled incognito, disguised as a sailor. Peter Mikhailov, the pseudonym that Peter adopted, is just one element of a bizarre chapter in Russian history involving stories about how Peter believed that if he had been recognised, he would not get the proper training he wanted. What training did he want? Specifically, while testing the diplomatic waters and pretending to represent vast Russian interests, he also tried to pick the brains of Europe's naval minds in the hope that he would in time be in a position to build a navy in the Baltic to rival that of Sweden's. He travelled around Europe, gaining first-hand experience with the Grand Embassy, learning the importance of navies and trade, as well as attempting to impress upon the states he met the need for unity across Europe in any future Ottoman wars. But the European states didn't want to know. They had no real time for the Grand Embassy or the freakishly tall sailor who looked suspiciously familiar. They had their own problems at home. These problems, as we know from the last episode, included the small matter of the soon-to-be-vacant Spanish throne and who would acquire it. So Peter, recognising the West was busy, returned to Russia in early 1699 with a newfound respect for sailors and navies, probably, but with not much else to show for it. With the Ottoman option abandoned for the moment at least, Peter returned to the old pastime of scheming against Sweden. Before he had left, though, Peter the Beardless had come to an agreement on an alliance with Augustus the Not-So-Strong in 1696, having ended the ancient Russo-Polish rivalry for the time being. I often compare the Russo-Polish rivalry to the Anglo-French one in my head, since these guys were pretty much always at war, but Peter was over that by now. He'd had a good shave that morning, and was ready for what Sweden could throw at him. 
Peter had developed the plans to attack Sweden with Augustus on his way back to Russia, and these plans were about to be put into action. The plans of the anti-Swedish League required joint action so as to force Sweden to fight on multiple fronts and exhaust their forces, and this was the whole cornerstone of the strategy. In line with this, on the 3rd of March 1700, Denmark attacked and laid siege to the holstein gottorp town of Tonning, located along the modern-day Danish-German border. As Charles of Sweden marched desperately to counter the Danish moves against his German ally in the region, the other members of the League began to move against him, forcing Sweden to fight a multiple-front war. Charles recognised what was at stake, just like his ancestors before him, He would go to war at the head of a great Swedish army, and just like his ancestors, it would be his mission to change the face of Europe. The attack on Tonning was just one of three moves by the anti-Swedish League aimed at overextending the Swedish army. However, the Danish attack was not to succeed for a number of reasons. Britain and the Netherlands, the two maritime powers at the time, viewed the Danish attack as bad news. They did not want a war in Scandinavia, as they knew that war was about to break out over the Spanish throne, and they wanted all hands on deck for that. But they also, conveniently, you might add, saw the Danish attack on Tonning as a violation of the previous Convention of Altona, an agreement which had been signed on the 30th of June 1689 by England, the Netherlands, Sweden, Denmark and Poland-Lithuania, and which confirmed the sovereignty of Holstein Gottorp. England and the Netherlands were the guarantors of the convention, and they did not appreciate Denmark violating an agreement that they had all agreed on before. So before his armies had even marched, Charles of Sweden was able to appeal to England and the Netherlands for support against the Danish attack, and he did so in a pretty fantastic way. The maritime powers piled diplomatic pressure on the Danes for invading lands they had guaranteed, and they also began performing large-scale naval manoeuvres in full view of the Danish fleet. While all this was happening then, the English and Dutch fleets also lent a few of their ships to aid the Swedes and help Charles coordinate a landing of troops near Copenhagen in August 1700. Such a landing scared the living daylights out of Frederick IV, the Danish king, and he made a quick peace a few days later. He signed the peace of Travendal on the 18th of November 1700, in a move which took Denmark out of the war, freed up some Swedish troops guarding the Danish border, and came as devastating news for the other two members of the alliance, Poland and Russia. The intervention of England and the Netherlands is an interesting case, because it seems as though both believed that if Denmark could be defeated quickly, then an end to the entire Great Northern War would follow, which would free up all the countries involved in that war to fight alongside the English and Dutch in the upcoming war in Western Europe. The maritime plowers, plowers, the maritime powers probably didn't really care about the sovereignty of Holstein Gottorp, but the Convention of Altona did give them a handy excuse to interfere and hopefully stop the war lasting too long. At the same time, though, the maritime powers had little interest in helping Sweden crush Denmark and lord its own demands over it. They demonstrated this when they withdrew their vessels as soon as the Danes had sued for peace. You see, it was all about diplomacy. Had the English and Dutch not expected a war to erupt in their back garden soon, it is unlikely they would have cared about Holstein Gottorp, but both believed that stability in Scandinavia would perhaps give them a chance to secure more allies against France and Spain, so they made their moves, unaware that both wars would run practically 
parallel to each other for the next decade, or that the war in Northern Europe would actually outlast the one they were soon to participate in for the Spanish throne. The English don't really appear back in the narrative for a good while yet, so let's look at the other powers at this stage. After his Danish success, Charles believed he could march from Denmark to defeat the Russians, who themselves had moved to besiege Narva, a city in modern-day Estonia on the Russian border. He noticed that Augustus was besieging Riga in Swedish Livonia, more of the Swedish Baltic territories, but then he saw that Augustus had retreated to his winter barracks for the time being, so he believed that the Russians were the more immediate threat. Understanding this, Charles decided to move to attack the Russians, 40,000 strong army with just 8,000 men of his own. Peter Pan, Peter Pan, Peter panicked, in fact, when he learned that Charles was on his way with an army, since he didn't know his force, I'm so going to leave that in there, since he didn't know his force outnumbered them five to one, and he abandoned his army to one of the subordinates. (laughs) Peter Pan, what the hell? Where did that come from? And he abandoned his army to one of his subordinates and went back to Moscow. Whew. Saying that, though, it has since been disputed as to whether Peter left out of a cowardly sense of fear or if he really did have pressing domestic issues at home to attend to. Judging by the number of times Peter puts himself in danger in the subsequent battles he's involved in, I would tend to lean on the side of domestic issues, but you never know. What Charles knew, though, was that he was massively outnumbered, but he was confident that he could make up in quality what he lacked in quantity. This explains the apparently massive gamble he was taking. There was the additional development of a huge snowstorm brewing just around Narva. Visibility was awful, journals retrieved from civilians at that time. Note that the winters during this war were some of the coldest they had ever seen, And considering what we know about the freezing famine soon to hit France in a few years, which really threw the French into the far, far, far deep end, this isn't too surprising. The Russians were terrified that some massive Swedish army would appear over the hills and attack them from all directions. So Charles planned on fulfilling this Russian fear as best as he could. Because he knew that he lacked the massive aspect of the Russian nightmare, he would have to use deception to his advantage. Charles was confident that he could use the snowstorm to disguise the actual size of his army and then decided to split his army into four, telling them to make as much noise as possible, giving the impression that the Russians were about to be overwhelmed. Charles may have hoped that the Russians would flee, which would remove the immediate danger to Narva, but but the Russians didn't flee, forcing Charles to face them in the First Battle of Narva on the 30th of November, 1700. For days before the battle, the blizzard paralysed both armies until the winds began to blow in the eyes of the Russians, crippling them, but giving the Swedes a great chance to capitalise. Charles saw his chance and took it. He split his army into two columns and attacked the Russian line, which split them into three. Charles then focused on each side and the blinded Russians were rounded up or destroyed. In the panic and chaos, the Russians tried desperately to retreat over a bridge, only for it to collapse and send many Russians to their doom in the freezing river. By the end of the battle, Charles had lost less than 1,000 men, while the Russians, between their blindness, the Swedish tactics and the collapsing bridge, had lost half their force, nearly 20,000 men. It was a crushing defeat for Peter, the worst news he could have got, and he learned of it while he was putting down yet another rising in Moscow. 
Thankfully for Peter, though, Charles did not press the attack and instead decided to wait till New Year. But even in the spring of 1701, Charles was in two minds about who to attack. If he moved against Peter, he may be able to force Russia out of the war, but Augustus was besieging one of his ports, still Riga, modern-day capital of Latvia, by the way, and Charles knew that Augustus was the most immediate threat. Charles had left a garrison of 15,000 men behind to protect the rest of the Baltic states, while he moved to cross the river Dogva and relieve Riga, which, if you know your Baltic states' geography, and I certainly don't, is on the mouth of that river, so it was pretty essential that Charles's army crossed it. Charles did cross it, but as usual he had to do it in such a way as to put everyone else to shame. He was able to coordinate the use of gun smoke and naval support in the form of naval bombardments of the camping Polish and Saxon armies on the other side, which shocked them out of their tents and awakened them to the fact that the Swedes are here and they're not messing around. Charles marched his army across a recently built bridge, and although his men came under fire from the Polish-Saxon artillery, they would not retreat because their king was present. Charles told them to press on and they eventually routed the Polish-Saxon army, which left the door open back into Poland. This happened on the 9th of July, 1701, but Charles continued marching all that month. By the end of it, he had defeated the Polish-Saxon forces at Dunamund. Charles then planned a full-scale invasion of Polish territory, a la the deluges of the 1650s, for the following year of 1702. To put it in perspective, Charles's possessions in the Baltic had once been threatened by three different states, and they were now secure after numerous decisive, triumphant battles. Thus far, the young king's achievements had been nothing short of stunning. He had routed all his enemies and paralysed the rest, once again finding a way to live up to the military reputation of his ancestors. What was once an anti-Swedish alliance of three, now contained only Poland-Lithuania as an effective fighting force, as Peter was still smarting from his previous defeat at Narva, and the Danes had been, basically, scared off. As the campaigning season of 1702 approached, the question seemed to be whether anything could stop Charles XII at all. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 